Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Hello, fellow superhumans. It is good to be with you and connecting with you via this podcast as one of my great privileges and joys in life. The desire to create meaningful connections and relationships is at the core of what makes us human. Today's guest, Guy Sangstock, is a master of profound communication. He is the founder and creator of The Circling Method, which teaches deep listening techniques and reveals a person's true essence and helps cultivate deep connections. The effects of circling are literally mind and heart changing, and the technique is an incredible tool for any charged or vulnerable conversation, be it with a loved one, a co-worker, or a friend. Guy has been facilitating transformation for individuals, groups, and corporations internationally for more than 20 years. He has a BFA from the San Francisco Art Institute, and he's also an artist, philosopher, poet, body worker, and visionary. In our conversation, Guy shares how to be comfortable with who we are and how magic happens when we begin to listen with intent and when we are not afraid to show our vulnerability. This episode provides what I believe to be one of the most valuable skills we as individuals can master, as communication is the basis for every human interaction. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Welcome to the Superhumanized Podcast. What a joy, what a privilege to connect with you today. It's great. Um, thanks for having me. It's, it's been a real privilege. I've enjoyed talking with you so far in the conversation that we had before this. So I'm looking forward to diving deeper. Likewise, absolutely. And ever since I listened to you, you were on the Aubrey Marcus podcast. I was just like, oh, gosh. I have to have Guy on my podcast because your life's mission and what you focus on is mm. really so pertinent to one of the fundamental things that move and fuel humanity, and that is communication. So what I'd really like to hear is your take on what do you think is the biggest issue with regards to communication in our culture today? Yeah, I would say it's interesting. I, that's, a, that's actually quite a deep question that you just asked because I'm still trying to understand the time that we're in. And I don't even know if I can understand exactly with the internet. I think on some level, the internet really radically changed communication in that we were, it's like the first time in history where we could 
exchange information uncoupled from facing each other face to face. And that's before the internet, you at least had to talk on the phone. So communication and relationship were one. And so they're uncoupled for the first time. And whenever you uncouple or change the structure of communication, it changes everything. Mm -hmm. So I think we're in the middle of it. I don't hear people talk about that part of it too much, but I think that what in, I think circling is really grew out of that age and is a, is an example of that age and a response to that age before any of us really even knew it. That being said, I would say that the biggest struggle around communication is that I don't really think that people walk around with a whole lot of awareness anymore that life is relationship all the way down, Mm -hmm. right? That we, in some sense, the human being, uh, we're just talking, I have a one-year-old, so I'm re-experiencing this whole year, this all again, that all human beings, first, we indwell in a deep intersubjective relation, relational space for years before we can even reference ourselves. And by the time we reference ourselves, when we say I for the first time, that I is given over by all of the way that people have related to us. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that we, in some sense, the human being becomes in and through relationship. And so how those relationships go, when they're ideal, they have the possibility of of maturing an infant into a, like a full-fledged, free, open, flexible, loving, autonomous individual. And when they don't, when they break down, they can lead to dependency and isolation and dysfunction. And I think that's the case for, for us throughout our lives is relationship is how we continue to become people is in and through that relationship. So in some sense, communication is part of that. And in a sense, a little downstream from that, I would say the primary thing is that I don't think that people are really awake to that, that, that sense of it. And therefore, since they're not awake to that, to it, they have a hard time relating and taking it seriously. And then we can get into there's all kinds of things where people really don't know the difference between disclosing themselves and like making assessments of the world and <laughs> assessments of you and judgments versus experience. And there's all those kinds of distinctions within communication that come up that we can talk about, talk about as well as what we go into in circling. Absolutely. And you brought up a few keywords, your guy amongst them, judging, which I would like to in a short while also to unpack that because I feel that especially in this time in our culture, so much of the communication and also the assessment of our environment is based on judgment. I would like to go back to something you just said a couple of minutes ago, though, which is profoundly interesting. And if I understood it correctly, you said that the sense of I, and we first also start to communicate from that point of I, is based on the kinds of interactions that we 
prior to that point in our life have gotten with the people who we communicated with, we were surrounded with. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. In some sense, by the time, so for example, my son's name's T, by the time he says I, where does he get what he's going to reference and that he says I? It's completely given by people responding to him in a particular way, right? If you just take our nervous system, the way that we're born, we don't have any distinction between the sound of the bird and the gurgle in our stomach. The difference, that distinction is something that we learn, right? So in some sense, it has to do with language and it has to do with like how vulnerable we are as infants. Right. We're the, if you think about, if you think about, I love thinking about how crazy human infants are in terms of any other living organism, right? We are the, by far the most helpless, right? We're the most helpless. We have the fewest instincts. We literally can't survive probably more than a couple of days on our own before something eats us or we just can't even feed ourselves, you right? But what's crazy is who's on top of the food chain, right? Who are the, who, what species is thinking about going to Mars and colonizing it? Who's the one that can conceptualize something like the universe and wonder about its origins? There's this deep connection between vul- our vulnerability and our ability. Mm. And I think the difference that makes that difference is precisely relationships. And how deep those relationships go and how well they are and how healthy they are and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And I would say that the thing that you brought up about judgment, if we're going to talk about it in terms of, which is the way I think that you mean, like interpersonal judgments, like the way when you're referencing it, I'm imagining what you mean is when when somebody's judgmental, not like philosophical judgment, but more like interpersonal judgment. I like to think about that is that when there's those snap judgments, that is really the mind's way of managing anxiety or chaos. Because we're so radically open to each other, the there's a if you're threatening and the what you're saying to me and what you're doing I don't understand or it's chaotic to me and some respect. All I really need to do is I can do this really interesting thing. I can go, oh, you're just fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. That just means you're just. And the moment I do that, I'm able to take this big kind of chaotic, threatening phenomena in front of me and nominalize it, Mm -hmm. separate it from me. And I don't have to deal with the chaos of it anymore. Yep. And then once I make that judgment, then it serves as like a lens that I look at you through. And then I can just collect evidence for what I already think I know about you. Mm. And in one level, you could say that protects us. Mm. But here's the strange thing is it also seal it also conceals us from the world. Because the moment I put a like a shell around me is also the moment I become brittle. So it's a paradox, right? In that sense. So like a lot of times when somebody's 
when we say that somebody's really open, really what that means is that they have a, enough of a sense of their own center and agency such that they can open to what's other than them because there's a sense that they can, in some sense, deal or learn because some, their self isn't at stake in the matter. Therefore, they don't need to have a lot of these judgments. They get to open and listen. And if they don't understand something, they can tune in and ask questions about it. So in that sense, you could say that maybe one of the things you could say is, I never even thought of this really before, but maybe the opposite of being judgmental is listening. Because mm-hmm. that's the one thing that stops when judgment starts is I stop listening. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense, Guy. And I think there's multiple layers here we're dealing with when we're being judgmental in that way that you described. I think one of it is simply biology because we had to, and sometimes we still need to rely on very quick assessments of a situation and a person in order to ensure our safety and survival. So I guess in a sense, that's something that's hardwired into us, but it goes much deeper as you also talked about. And that is when you want to protect your ego, your sense of self, that persona, from anything that is challenging or threatening to it, which could be an idea that's completely foreign to your lifestyle. So what better way to do that than judging it and you're putting a separation between you and not only the idea, but also the person. And in that way, you don't have to deal it. You neatly locked it in a box and then you can talk derisively about the box and certainly not to the box and most certainly not to the human being who represents the box. Yes, totally. Mm. And you're making a really important distinction there, right? Not because this is, I think what makes interpersonal judgment in the toxic sense that we're talking about judgment is it's distinct from discernment. I can make discernments about you, but it doesn't become it doesn't become a judgment until I make it a until I have a hook in about your identity. The moment I identify you as a person, this and what are you in reality? You are an inexhaustible mornist, right? That like I, you and I could sit here for a thousand years and we can try to describe everything that we are and that we're experiencing and never reach the bottom of ourselves, right? There's something spontaneously, predictably unpredictable about being a human being, right? Our capacities, I find out who I am. I find out what I'm going to say. I can't even predict myself, nonetheless, you. Good right. Cool. So in some sense, there's something deeply inexhaustible about us. However, mm-hmm. what judgment does is it takes something that you say that maybe there's some discernment in it. And then I go, oh, that just means you're just. And there's that hook of identity. Mm-hmm. And once that happens, then I'm closed to you in a way that's not actually appropriate to the nature of the kind of being that you are mm-hmm. in some sense. And also not appropriate to oneself. So 
I certainly have myself sat in that trap of judgment. And I certainly still today, every once in a while, catch myself. And a lot of times I probably don't even catch myself, right? This is a journey we're all learning. So when we realize that we actually operate from that as a default, as a reaction towards anything that might subconsciously or even consciously be perceived as a threat. And if we do desire to break out of that mode, what are some steps that we can take ourselves? Yeah. (laughs) First, the first thing, I think one of the things that you said in there that I want to pick up on that will lead into the answering of the question you really highlighted the sense of the impact. So there's the impact of my judgment on you, but really the one who suffers is me, is the judger. Because in some sense, in order to like, if I can, because I I think when we judge other people in that way, out of a sense of hurt or fear, I do, I, it's like a contraction that I do with my whole being. It's not like I just do with my little toe locally towards you. And I think it's the same thing with, for example, love, right? When you fall in love with somebody, right? And you're in that like dreamy and love period in the beginnings of relationships that a lot of us have experienced. It's like, you're not, your heart is not just open to that person when you're with them. It's open to them when you're not with them. Your mother is less irritating during that time. Sunsets are brighter. It's like, it's an opening with done with your whole being. It's not just local, it's global. And I think this interpersonal judgment, and this is where it gets to the inner, the, it's really the judger who's suffering because it's a contraction with one's whole being. With that distinction, you can start to get at what do, you, what do we do about that when we fall into that sense of judgment? One of the things, this is where circling, I think, is really powerful because one of, the, one of the things that we do is that when we notice judgments coming up, right, in the practice, is we immediately note it as a judgment and then start to inquire, is there something about you who I'm judging that feels threatening to me? Mm-hmm. Is there something about what you just said that has me want to judge you that is chaotic for me? And the moment that you start, the moment you want to identify it as a judgment, right? And then fold it back into the judger, to the source of the judger, as the source of the judgment, then then you can start to discover what is it that's having me judge you? And just in the process of just simply doing that, I'm unhooking the momentum of the judgment, which is out towards you. And I'm bringing it back into the source of the judgment, which is me. It's so interesting because I've seen so many times that people who start off judging somebody that go through that process end up up learning something really intense about themselves that's really important. But also in the process, the source of their judgment ended up opening that person to the person that they were judging in a profound way. And it ends up becoming this deep moment of intimacy for both people. And that's also a beautiful way of when you become aware of something that you may not like or may not think positively about. None of us likes to think of ourselves like, oh, I'm a judgmental person. 
So we close up even more because we feel bad about ourselves, most of us. And then instead of alienating yourself even more from yourself to just use this as a tool and as fuel for growth and as an opportunity to learn. So you turn something that you perceive as negative initially actually into a positive. And Guy, you are... Especially for the people that you want to be close with. Yeah. Especially for those people who are important to you, like your friends and your family. And those relationships that that matter to you in a deep way. Because those are the ones where, one, most likely most of the, where the judgment comes up the most are with the people that have, and they're also the relationships that will affect you're most affected by, therefore the judge, making a judgment, holding grudges and having judgments about your husband, your mom, your dad, your sisters, your colleagues, all that kind of stuff. If those are the ones that really matter, those are the ones that really matter. Guy, I would like to give those in our audience who are not yet fully familiar with you a little bit of your background. If you wouldn't mind sharing, you actually had an experience within your circle of friends that led you to develop the circling method. Can you tell us about what happened there and give us an overview of what circling is, please? Yeah, I'll do my best. I'm like in the middle of it. So I always find out what I'm going to say about circling. In some ways, I've been told that I'm like the worst person to ask about it because (laughs) I feel so close to the cutting edge of it that it's that I'm usually I'm constantly learning more and more about circling. Um, So it's difficult for me to sum up, but uh, but in turn, we'll start with the history. Um, So I think to get a picture of what of the time that circling got started was in, this is in the late 90s. So 1998 is when I would say the first moment or the first circle happened spontaneously with a group of friends of mine. Now at that time, it's in the Bay Area, right? It's, it's the very beginning of the, top, the dot-com movement, right? The beginning of the internet. Right? Burning Man was just starting to become really a thing it was the it was towards the the last wave of rave culture and psychedelics and MDMA and I remember there was a term back then called the urban tribal communities right where there were just packs or tribes of people who lived in cities and stuff like that that would converge around a particular kind of house music or a particular kind of Eidos or ideology or something like that. I moved to San Francisco from where I was, or I spent a lot, a big part of my life where I graduated high school was in Arizona. I moved to the Bay Area to go to art school. And that was the first time I had really lived in a big city since I was a kid, a little kid. And I started to be around this world of people doing psychedelics mm-hmm. and a lot of like deep thinkers. And I was in art school. So as a, exposed to this avant-garde community, 
where I would say I woke up was in something like the 12-step program community because my parents got sober when I was 12. And I, I had a, a bit of a emotional existential break when we moved away from my grandparents, which my grandparents were the ones that kind of were the one you could say stable part of my life while my parents were addicted to drugs and all the stuff that goes with that. And when they got sober, they moved away from Chicago and that's where my grandparents were. And I experienced like a, an existential ontological rip in my reality. And at that time, my parents got really involved and got sober in AA and got really involved in it. So I started to be around people who were deep spiritual people and it was, everyone was clean and sober. So by in, in my early 20s, by the time I go to, uh, to San Francisco, I start meeting even deeper people and they're all getting high and <laughs> doing psychedelics and in this whole culture. And a lot of that stuff was brand new to me. And in that whole mix of things, I met somebody named Jerry Candelaria. And he started introducing me to a lot of his friends and I started to get, he was deeply involved in the personal self-transformational of like landmark mm -hmm. education, est, this whole kind of personal transformational world or the human potential movement, I guess is another way you can put it. And a lot of that stuff was really in that form was new to me. And he connected with me and saw something in me and I saw something in him and all of his friends that were a slightly different language, but we were fascinated with each other. We went to Burning Man together. We were walking around with a small group of friends out on the playa. Have you been to Burning Man? No, not yet. Okay. okay. Yeah. So you would, you'll know if when you go, you'll know exactly what I mean by going for a walk on the playa. It's its own, it's its own thing. But in 1998, we were walking around going for a walk and there was a conflict that just erupted between two of the people and a tension was emerging. And we ended up in a, in way out in the middle of nowhere in this strange circular teepee structure that someone built. It's the middle of the night. And we sat down and I just got started getting interested in the conflict. And Jerry and I spontaneously started responding to that conversation in such a way that it, that pretty soon it left the level of, of the conflict and it got really personally deep for one of the people so deep that what ended up being revealed about this person, it was almost the story, the way they talk about it is, it was like, he says, it's like, as if everyone's attention went all the way down to the core of whatever it is that makes me, mm. brought it into themselves and then showed it to me and then gave it back and then it went to the next person and the same thing happened and the next person, the same thing happened and it went all the way around and it was like 12 hours later, <laughs> right? Sun's coming up and, my, and we're walking away and Jerry pointed back to where we were, where we had been sitting as we were walking away. And I, and he, 
you didn't have any words for it. And I pointed back and I didn't have any words for it. And we had this silent communication where it was so clear that whatever that was, whatever that deep, intense experience was deep and intense in a way that was unlike all the other deep, intense things that we were around. It just stood out specifically really to, to both of us, particularly. And we just reached, spontaneously reached our hands out to each other and shook on it and just committed to it. Mm. Had no idea what that meant. It was interesting. So much came out of that handshake that we had no idea at the time. But what we did have an idea was that whatever horizon opened up that evening, whatever shined through that touched us deeply. And it brought both of our attentions to each other and towards it. And in some sense, for me, on a real personal level, circling is the process of discovering what that horizon is, what opened up that night, right? What opens up in circling? And I would say that circling, in some senses, is the continuing articulation of, although circling as a practice that's now all over the world, and we can talk about how that happened, because that was the result of not just me and Jerry, but just a ton of people and, and their involvement in situations that unfolded at that time. But for me, although explicitly we don't, circling isn't a spiritual practice. For me, in that way, it really is. It's a way of, it's a way of being in human in interactions and relationships in such a way that it it's, becomes transparent to being itself. Mm. And that taste of being that one can get through deep intimacy with other people, I think shows, shines a particular quality of beingness that is really, is deeply personal in a way that if you follow it all the way back, it's what all the mystics have been talking about. It's what all the philosophers have been getting at. So as you go all the way back, I think essentially it's a thread that goes to a place that human, a few human beings have been able to touch in on, call it emptiness, oneness, being, all the different words that won't quite say it. Essentially, I think that's what opened up that evening. And it opened up particularly in and through relationship. And so out of that handshake, Jerry and I started to do courses together. And I would say by the third course that we did with our group of friends is by that, I think I remember by that time we had a name for it called circling. And we were really clear that that's what we were doing was circling. And then from there, a lot of people started to get involved. Now, this was also in a set in a setting. We were right, as I said, it was right in the beginning of the dot com movement. So that we had, we were around lots of, lots of deeply who were to become really influential people in the, in the internet world. A lot of early programmers. There were people like Bob Jesse, who was in like, integral in the psilocybin studies that happened at John Hopkins, I, all kinds of, 
all kinds of conferences that we went to. I remember one called Awe to Action that Bob Jesse hosted that we were invited to with all of these other scholars and professors. Jordan Peter, remember Jordan Peterson was there. This is like 20, over 25 years ago, talking about studying the phenomena of awe with all these researchers and scientists and philosophers. All of that was going on at that time. Rave culture, we had our own, we would put on our own, like we had our own kind of rave community with house music and I'm a DJ and it was all very much a part of our time, right? And and so you, you really want to put it in context that in some sense, what opened up for us in that night was a facet that was inside of, of a whole that was pretty remarkable, I would say. In fact, the further away, in, further it goes back in history, the more I understand it, right? Mm-hmm. It's the more, the further in the future I go, the more that history starts to become a particular show its particulars. And I have a feeling I'm going to keep seeing more of it as time goes on. Yeah. And I love your description of the entire surroundings. Culturally, what happened, really super exciting time. So many seeds that opened up there where we're just also starting to reap fruit. Now you think about What's happened with Burning Man, the rave culture, you think about the renaissance or this third wave that we're experiencing of psychedelics and psychedelic research, which I also want to talk about that, how you see a connection with how communications is also changing again. What I'd really like is maybe you can give us an example of how what we consider to be a normal quote communication interaction being with each other, how circling would differ from that? A couple of things I want to say about that is in some sense has come to be known. And I think accurately. So the circling is a considered to be, it's a relational practice, Mm -hmm. right? or some people call it a relational yoga or meditation, taking the fundamental unit of of relating, the I-thou relationship, that just the the fundamental unit that underlies all relationships of all various kinds, the the I-thou relationship. And circling has developed a yoga out of that. What I like to think about it is if you... Say, for example, you were to look at all of the profound conversations that you've had in your life, all of the profound moments of intimacy that you've had that have been life-changing in a powerful way. And if you were to take all of those, right, and find the through lines, the common through lines that went through them in how you listened, how you spoke, where you came from, qualities of beingness, right? ways of being with each other, ways of listening. And then you, in some sense, made those like an asana, like asanas that you take in in yoga. You could say circling is basically getting together and practicing those asanas with each other. 
those asanas in listening, those asanas in communication, those asanas in qualities of, in ways of being with each other that seem to underline the logos or the underlying logic of intimacy. And so circling is the practice of that and going deeper and deeper in that. So I think that's probably the best way for somebody who's never experienced to conceptualize it. Mm-hmm. And so some sense, and it's interesting that for the most part, there really hasn't been many practices like that, which is really interesting to me, especially considering that relationships are the way that we become ourselves, like we were talking about. I would imagine that is the case because a little bit of what we talked about earlier, like before the internet, in some sense, life necessitated relationship so much more than it does now. Now we can make connections with people. In fact, if you have an internet connection, you could become a millionaire, start a company, become world famous, and never actually have to actually literally talk to somebody else in a live person. You can do all of that. It's really strange. That's never been the case before. So in some sense, I think this practice has become a necessary one and is part of the way it's manifested in the actuality around the world because circling is a worldwide phenomenon at this point. And I would say that it's not like there was a bunch of people who were really smart about marketing or business or any of that kind of stuff. In fact, it was like, I think in the early days, it was, it was an emerging thing that was opening up and it was opening up with people, right? And people are people. But somehow it really picked up and went all around the world. And I think that part of that has to do with this way that human life no longer necessitates as much relationship as it used to. And relationships are inherently messy and scary. And so if we have a choice to send a text versus have a conversation, our nervous systems will send a text. And that's a choice that we've never had until the last 25 years. You can imagine, similar to what the Industrial Revolution did in our relationship with our bodies, like machines brought the world into a small circle in front of us. And so it uncollapsed life living from movement. Then all of a sudden we started to get fat. (laughs) We started having all these health conditions. Mm -hmm. You had to, now that transformed our relationship to what our bodies are, right? Radically, because now we have to take up our physical fitness as an actual thing that we have to relate with. Now we have gyms and the whole culture around of it. I think something is similar is happening with intimacy. And I think circling is one of the first things that met that in that way. So I would say the practice has been a, it's a, the way it's read is because it's so powerful, but it's also the particular time and the need that was there. It met a a particular need and still is meeting it. And before you and I actually pressed record for this conversation, we briefly talked about the learning, but especially also the unlearning. In which uh, I'm 
I acknowledge that I'm still unlearning so much and you yourself also acknowledge that you're unlearning so much, especially within the context of your marriage. And I would like to actually tie that into a question that I have with regards to the different levels of practice that exist when it comes to circling, right? If I'm a complete newbie, what are some of the practices or maybe even because you liken it or you turn it into series of asanas that I may be engaged with when I first start to with this practice? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the main, you could say, the main thing that circling has as practice is the, the main thing it's really grounded in, which presupposes all relationships, is really being present into the present moment. Mm. In order to live well, we need to have lots of goals and have it articulate a sense of purpose and all those kinds of things in the way that we live our life. And what's interesting is in, in relationship, when it comes to interpersonal, intersubjective intimacy, things like goals and agendas are things that are actually counter to a lot of intimacy. Intimacy and connection are always happening in the present moment, right? So like at ground level, you could say that circling in the way that you practice circling and what it brings to relationships is one, being grounded in the present moment with the person that you're with, being really sovereign, sovereignly and agentically aware of what you are aware, that you're aware, one, noticing that you're aware, noticing what you're aware of in yourself, what's going on in your mind, what you're feeling emotionally, what your desires are, right? The totality of that whole complex being called you as you're in the present moment with the other person and aware of and starting to become aware of all the moment by moment ways that who I am and what I'm aware of is being affected and Mm -hmm. co-affecting with you. That's, you could say, the relational field, if you will, right? This shared awareness, this kind of, some people call it like the we space. Those are all kind of fancy ways of talking about the way that you and I are present with each other. And that presence happens in the present moment, right? So that's really the, I would say the ground level that everything else, right? Articulates and is born out of and deepens is this grounding sense of being aware and deeply present with the other person. Then there's two basic components to the next level up is communication, right? The way that we communicate and the way we listen and the way we apprehend the other person. And so how this, I would say that what circling does is it emphasizes one of the things that usually is not emphasized in a lot of our relationships, right? So for example, I would say most human relationships and conversations, if you tune into them, right? If you go to Denny's, let's say, or 
you go to a conference or, and you tune into any two people talking, most likely it's going to have this structure. There's going to be, there's going to be me, there's going to be you, and then there's going to be this third triangular thing called what we're talking about. So there's usually an about, right, where there's you and I, and then there's a topic or a thing that we're in reference to about. Now, it's what I would say is what's rare, right, is to take away or make the about what's happening between us right now. And what's interesting, you can probably just feel that just in the sense of just describing it. If I take, if I stop talking about something with you, and then I just start to, and I bring my attention in with you in that moment, you can feel a difference. It's a real different space opens up, right? I start noticing like you, like all of your head movements got a little bit more dramatic and slower. And then I'm noticing, I start to notice the, the shape of your face and the little gestures in your face and become aware of like a growing sense of ease that I have with you and feel with you in this conversation. And I, I imagine it's because I can sense a real deep courtesy in you and a generosity and a sense of gratitude that kind of emanates in my experience from you that has me feel really comfortable. What are you experiencing? If we just bring this live a little bit. Yeah. So this is really interesting and beautiful because what it does is actually makes me feel seen and actually also helps me see myself in a way that I have not perceived myself fully before. Hearing that, I noticed I had this pre-reflective come up and I'm imagining that's uh, that's from an experience of the impact of you getting the real taste of what I'm talking about in that moment. I felt a confirmation and went. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. And also it just, there was, I felt a really nice bond from the first seconds we spoke, which is due to also the person who you be, who you, your, what your soul brings into this world taking away the about and what you just so brilliantly did it's all of a sudden there's a much deeper connection there's like soul to soul yeah absolutely and it's interesting because if you can notice right when you stop talking what's interesting about this space is when I get done sharing is precisely when I hit the unknown. Like I have no idea what's going to happen next. That space of unknown, right? I would say is very akin to the space of intimacy. Mm -hmm. This contactfulness where we really encounter the other in their otherness. And in doing so, just like when you look in someone's eye, 
and you look into their pupil, on one level, that pupil goes on into infinity. But then you can also notice that very pupil also reflects a reflection of you, <laughs> right? So there's this way where being close to you and your otherness in some sense delivers myself to myself in some way. And mm -hmm. that mysterious connection that seems that when we don't have that kind of connection in our lives, we lose something. We really lose a sense of a kind of musicality of meaning. When you don't have those deep connections where you can go into flow states with people and that back and forth confirmation of your own existence. And as you said, as you just mentioned, I think one of the things I, that you mentioned that I appreciated was, yeah, I cut through that, just that little short interaction. I've come to see, I came to see more about myself mm. and learned a little bit more about myself, right? Through my sharing the impact of your effect on me. Mm. That little moment of being confirmed, right? In a surprising way which is really different than like a narcissistic mirroring, right? It's more an experience of being, and I think you even use this word, of being and feeling seen. Yes, and you use the word intimacy and into me see in a sense. And it's establishing a very deep connection that also takes us out of that space of judgment. Because yeah. we're just open to each other's humanity, to the expression of our souls in that moment. So everything else, all these constructs of judgment, everything collapses. How beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And there's something about that experience is just nourishing in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Just the fact that you can have that experience with somebody, that, that mutual recognition. And you can even do it with people like I just met you. It doesn't have really anything to do with amount of time that I've known you or not known you. It's, it really, there's a possibility that opens up with two people that seems to come with our nature, right? Mm -hmm. Is available. And one of the things that, that you can one of the ways to make that a, to help realize it is you just take away the about and you get present with the person and then you just commit to describing as best you can and disclosing what that's like being with you in this yeah. moment. I would like to take this to a level where, so we just met. How about when, and you talked about it before, the people who were in a sense most influenced by and who we also may have the most judgment towards or them judging us as the people we often are closest to. Let's say you have a particularly stuck pattern, loop, way of non-communicating really with a parent. And it's just, oh, it's been like that for decades. So how do you bring, and there's no real actual intimacy because all you just triggering each other and you're just talking at each yeah. other in a way that you've done for decades. So how right. would you suggest to bring in circling and facilitate this connection, something that seems so stuck? It's funny. You brought up like the example of with your parents mm. and that is 
is it Ram Das who says, if you think you're enlightened, go speak, spend a week with your family. <laughs> I'm about to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So you're tuning in. Please help before I go home. <laughs> so one of the things, one of the things about this, and we emphasize this in circling, but it's even for the people who practice it, it's really, it's difficult to remember this, but there's no formulas in terms of relating. There are principles and places to come from, right? But there's the moment that somebody starts to be wrote about what they said, it just is weird, right? Because there's so much normativity in conversations that if it goes off of that normativity, it's just like a record scratches or something like that. I usually suggest that in terms of the most difficult place to practice the principles, right, that we're talking about is with the people that you're closest with, and especially with your family. And if there's a lot of, there's a lot of baggage in your family, or there's a lot of like dynamics that habitually and hurt and all those kinds of things that can come, this can be the most challenging, right, to communicate well in. And so I just want to say that, first of all, I just have so much respect for those dynamics in families. I've, as a, I do one-on-one work with people and I've done things where I've worked with families before where I've gone and moved in with them for a couple of weeks and then worked with the family live as they familyed. And I got to say, I have gotten so much, I have so much, I feel so humbled and respectful of the depth of what goes on with families. And how pernicious and cruel communication can get. And what's really underneath all of it is a, is love, mm-hmm. right? With love. So in some sense, in the communication, getting to that love, you have to go through a lot of defensiveness right? and a lot of different things that have usually been there for years. So there's no, I would say that there's no formula for it. However, what we talk about in circling, in terms of communicating with people authentically, we get, the way that we do it is we boil it down to just these certain components, right? Is the, in these distinctions is one, communicating what you notice, right? In other words, what I can notice in the present moment and describe what's describable is what is noticeable. The second one is what I imagine, right? And this is another way of saying what, I, what it means to me, what I make it mean, right? what I'm imagining about what I notice. So an example would be something hypothetically like, oh yeah, last Tuesday I noticed when I said X, Y, and Z and you looked down and turned red, I imagine you got really mad and that you started hating me. What usually happens though, is because we don't make this distinction between what we notice and what we imagine, is we go, last Tuesday, you fucking started hating me. It, it really quickly becomes an assessment because we don't make that distinction between what the descriptive lo- level and then what I imagine. And when I say what I imagine about what I saw, right? Now I'm, dis- I'm self-disclosing. 
I'm not making reality claims about you. I'm like letting you know what I imagine. And then the third is what I feel, the emotions I felt with, which will be very correlated to what I noticed and what I imagined. And then what I want underneath it. So it could be like that example. Yeah, last Tuesday when you turn when I said X, Y, and Z, X, Y, and Z, and you turn red, I imagine that you got really mad and you've been hating me ever since. And I felt combination of I felt defensive and I felt scared. And what I really want is to feel closer with you. And I'm afraid that maybe that won't happen. Mm, beautiful. So you can see right there that if you're the one listening, really what I just did is I didn't really make any claims about you. I actually revealed myself and then I expressed my deepest desire towards you Mm. in some sense. And what's really crucial about what you just shared with us is that in order to Uh, truly communicate we also need to be comfortable opening up right making ourselves vulnerable vulnerable and letting ourselves be seen so um, a lot of us have learned not to do that to keep closed up keep guarded not show that we actually hurt or scared or need something so how can we let go of that acquired default control and become comfortable with who we truly are and also voicing that. And to get, I think it's really important to get that we, the experience of, you could say, how I would just like simply say what you just said is like, when I contract, when my being contracts, right, and I feel closed around my parents or at all, like the judgments start coming up or I feel like I want to withdraw or I feel defensive, all of those things. One is I think the only appropriate response to that with ourselves is compassion. Mm-hmm. I think that's step number one. Is Actually, step number one is awareness. Aware, oh, just just this alone, rather than just being contracted and speaking and acting from that, to become aware of that I'm closed or defensive or scared or contracted as defensive, scared, or aware of that, that just like really confronting the state that we're in and being aware of it as the state that we're in. And then two is having a genuine, like compassionate response to ourselves. Because it's interesting. I never, it's funny. I find myself in a contraction. I find myself defensive. I find myself in these situations in some sense, it having it already begun. So it's not like I'm standing outside of myself and I'm saying to myself, I think it'd be a great idea to like really tighten every pore of my body and close my heart and then start judging you, and then I press a button and I go. That's not what we're like. We find ourselves in situations where this stuff just comes up. And so having an accepting, compassionate embrace of that 
is what presupposes everything else right after that, especially around your family, because there are just so many things that have been going on for such a long time that there's grooves in our brains and our nervous systems and responses that like, we simply don't have any direct control over, Mm -hmm. right? So like allowing, giving yourself some room to be aware of it and have compassion for it, I think is really the ground for everything else being possible there. Yes. And having compassion for ourselves that alone, that softens us up, that lets some of that constriction open up. And I think we forget that. And even if we're people who are usually quite compassionate towards others, often we can forget to actually apply that same compassion to ourselves. We just beat ourselves up. And And then, yeah, go go ahead. Because say from there, the other thing is if you want to have a deeper conversation with your, say your parents, right? Or your family. One of the things that we talk about in circling is the importance of setting context. A con- setting context is basically naming like a desire. Like I really have a desire to have like more of a deeper heartfelt conversation with you. Mm-hmm. Is that all right? Can we do that right now? Right now, just that in itself is an act of vulnerability, right? Just naming what I want, right, is a way of being vulnerable first. But it's also a way of getting permission from the other person mm-hmm. and enter into a particular space such that your nervous systems can be, can really choose, be in a, in a choosing response to what we're about to go into versus a surprise. And that's one of the big mistakes that I see a lot of people make is they go, they go and they learn all this stuff and they see something that's possible. And then they're like, I'm going to go express my feelings with my family. <laughs> uh, and the family, what the hell just happened? <laughs> that's an excellent point. And it actually, in a sense, is also asking for consent and it's allowing both of or whoever is participating in the conversation for their nervous systems to align, for everything to calm down, settle down, because surprises cause us often to panic. It's a change, and our brain doesn't like changes. Our brain wants to keep us alive, so anything that's a sudden, especially sudden change, is perceived as a threat. Yeah, absolutely. And... You mentioned it before. So big part of a conversation, of course, is not only expressing ourselves and how we express ourselves, but listening. How can we actually check in with ourselves to make sure whether or not we are truly listening? In the sense that when you think about it, if you think about, look at it this way, to get to someone to say something for context of listening and see in ground why it's so important is that when you think about, when you think, usually when people think about communication, in fact, if you go to the bookstore and you look at the relationship section, there'll be a ton of books about communication, but most of them talk about what to say. Mm -hmm. 
It's about how to more powerfully communicate, how to do that, right? Which is one half of it. But the most primary part, the reason, the thing that presupposes any speech, any communication, is it's all speech is always called forth and speaks into a listening, right? So you could say that all the things that are said are a function of a some kind of sense of an audience or a listening that would that calls forth the speech, and therefore listening. All speech is a function of listening. That being the case, the more my listening is deeply attuned, right, to you and to your listening, to your attention, what's happening in the present moment, all the different dimensions attuned to myself, right, the more my, my, my listening is attuned the more what I say will be directly and automatically in response to that. So like in some sense, I won't even have to think about what I'm saying because I'm listening so deeply that I'll just be already in response to what is most true in that present moment, right? So that is uh, like ontologically listening is always prior to speech. So really being grounded in a deep listening. And the paradox about listening, here's the paradox, right? And this is after, you know, at this point, over 20 years of, of teaching people on how to become more profound listeners is that the first thing to get about listening, such that if you don't get this about listening as impossible, is that you don't listen, <laughs> right? That's the paradox is that you, until you really get the ways that you don't listen, listening isn't going to be possible. Mm-hmm. Once you get that you're not listening, and the depth of which you may not be listening, is the moment listening has begun. And that's usually that sense of like when you've known somebody for a long time, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, now I understand you. You hear what you actually hear is that you didn't understand them that whole time, mm-hmm. right? That's that kind of insightful opening, that recalling. And so in your listening, just knowing that most of the time that you're probably not hearing all of it, right? That's probably when you know that you're listening is when you're tuned in with a sense of, I, don't, I probably am not hearing the full depth of this, which has you listen in, into further. Right. And I would say if you were to start with your family, before you even go into communicating what's going on with you to them in a more deep, deep level, even before that, just starting to attend to them and listen to them in a deeper way and in, in ways that are not too weird or too overly vulnerable, right? being able to notice those things about your dad that are unique to him, right? Just noting, oh yeah, I notice every time we come over, you always make a point to to say this one thing or to talk or let me know about this or to have this drink ready or something like that. Yeah, there's something, there's just a way that you attend to us that I just want to, I appreciate and I see. How did you, how did that happen? Hmm. So you can see right there in that moment, 
but there's a sense where it takes a little vulnerability to do that, right? It's something that you see about him that maybe it shows that you're paying attention to him, right? And you're not just paying attention to the surface, but you're paying attention to where he's coming from. And then you're asking him about it. You're acknowledging him for it. You're sharing that you appreciate it. And then you're asking him about it. In that moment, that invites him to step forward some more. If you can start to, if you can start to just in those little ways in your family, start to notice those things, right? And bring them to attention and show them that you're paying attention to them and you want to pay attention to them and that you're interested in them and begin to create a level of safety that can start to be touched on and established, right? And rapport such that your nervous systems are a little bit more open to each other, such that when you say, hey, I'd love to have a conversation with you. It's a little bit more on the emotional side because I really want to feel closer to you and I'd love to have a talk like that. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that? Beautiful. And I think a key word that you said truly is safety. So if we can give another human being the feeling that they are safe with us, that they don't need to defend themselves, that opens up the basis for truly communicating with each other and allowing us to be seen. Because oftentimes, even within our families, they're in a certain on a certain level, we don't feel safe, maybe not emotionally, maybe not intellectually, even though we have what from the outside looks like, oh, a good family life. So safety, yes, that's really crucial. Mm. And with listening, I had an interesting experience a couple of months ago that I'd like to share with you. I had the opportunity to meet two gentlemen. They were leaders from the Kogi tribe in Colombia. They were representatives of the tribe. And I learned something really fascinating that oftentimes when you're in conversation with a member of the tribe and you ask them a question, so as a as an outsider, as a foreigner, you'd feel like, oh, have they even listened to me? Because they're yeah. not answering right away. We come from a culture where I get asked something, I'll immediately spit out the answer. That's how we've been primed to talk with each other. And so what their default is, they actually really listen to you and your question. And then the listening goes even deeper. They listen inside of themselves for the answer that is in alignment with their truth. And it could be something as simple as you guy, you ask me, hey, Ariana, I'm moving tomorrow. Can you give me a hand? And my immediate response would be, oh, yeah, sure. Of course, I'll help you. Because in general, I consider myself a helpful human being. However, would I have really listened inside of myself? Maybe, I don't know, maybe there's something like, oh, I actually have a back pain and I wouldn't be neither doing you nor me justice. So the answer might be different if I really listen to my deepest truth and then provide you with the answer. And I found that fascinating. Totally. Mm. Totally. I, a couple of things, one of the things I think I heard in that was first of all, that it caught your attention Mm. the way that it did. I, is I heard your listening in the way that they respond. I heard you listening to the deeper level of them. 
and getting it. And it's, I'm appreciating that you're listening to me. I'm noticing a certain kind of freedom in this conversation with you. That's just, there's a flow that's coming out of me that is really a function of how deeply you're, I feel listened to by you. Mm. And so like the way that you just, you heard their practice of listening, I think is also disclosive of your listening. And what I really liked about what I heard is this, just the sense of slowing down, first of all, right? That's one of the big things that we do in circling, right? Is, is, and it's also a function of because we're learning something, to learn something really is oftentimes means slowing things way down. And so just that sense of really listening to you and then pausing and just that pause, right? And then looking inside of myself and looking for the deepest cut, right? And then sharing that, just the pace of that will transform the space of that conversation and what's possible. Yes. And there's... And there's another interesting layer to that is that from what I understood is that the Kogi believe that when you answer in a way that is not congruent with your truth, that it affects the quantum layer, the quantum space of the universe, because you are actually not in integrity and that will affect the universe in a way. Wow. Yeah. That's a real rich, that's a, that's impressively, that's an impressive sense of responsibility. Yeah. A lot of food for thought. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's a universe in which I live in a way that everything matters. Yes. Including, including the way I respond to the most simplest communication. Yes. And I found really it really resonated with me because I'm a recovering people pleaser. <laughs> so yeah. the way I would answer in the past to questions, requests, demands, observations was very different to how I do it now. And again, I recognize that old patterns that have been decades in my life, it takes a while to overwrite them. But I found it especially different from that aspect because it's like, I actually very often answered questions or requests without being in integrity with myself, my own. Really checking. Yeah. No, really checking. Yeah. And there is something about, it's interesting. One of the things I've discovered I really like through circling is I love watching people think watching people pause and really look there's not there's a real privilege to that and in a certain sense there's so much communicating that's going on in just that pause right because if somebody pauses and they take a moment of silence there's a real sense that they're really taking this interaction seriously that in itself, that pause just feels like to me, like a, it's such a moment of self-disclosure in that little pause is like you talked about, there's a whole metaphysics 
going on there of being in integrity with the universe. It's all the way up at the quantum level. That's a, I can't imagine talking to them and not feeling like the most important thing in the universe in that moment to them. And in, there's another thing just about listening on a practical level is, especially if you're new to this, right? One of the important things, skills that we develop, like dribble drills, right? Um, encircling is one of the things that we have people practice a lot is paraphrasing, making sure that you get what the other person has said. And one of the ways to do that is just by paraphrasing them, right? And so we'll do these exercises where we'll go really deep. And it's funny how deep these go, where we say one person, what they're going to do is one person is just going to share something meaningful to them. And then the other person is going to be the committed listener and paraphraser. So they'll say, the person will start talking and the person will say, let me see if I got it. And they'll paraphrase, right? Using some of their own words that summarizes what they just heard. And they say, did I get it? And the person says, yes, or almost, right? And they're like, okay, what else? And then they paraphrase that. What else? They paraphrase that. They check. Did I get it? What else? And it, we've done that for up to two hours, right? Mm-hmm. And where you end up getting to, right, is really can be really profound just through the act of paraphrasing and listening in that way. And Mm -hmm. so one of the things that, especially if you're in, if you're in one of those situations that often happens in families where you're getting barraged by somebody complaining about you or whatever that is, one of the things that introduces a new momentum, it also gives use some space to breathe in that conversation is go, okay, wait a minute. I just want to make sure sounds like you're have some really intense criticisms of me. So I want to make sure I get them. You're saying, but and you just start to walk your way into what they said. And what's interesting about paraphrasing is it's not parroting. And you get this experience when you do it, because what you're actually doing is that in order to summarize what they just said, you actually have to in some sense, we get in their position and walk what they said in their own shoes, in your shoes. And when you do that, it starts to make a lot more sense. And the other person, it starts, they start, what they said starts to make sense to them. And you're implicitly letting them know that you're really listening and that you want to listen. So that's, if you ever lose your footing in a conversation like that, if all you can remember to do is to paraphrase what you're hearing and ask more questions about that, you can probably just imagine how that introduces a momentum, right? That can one diffuse the, uh, the aggression or the tense conflict of it and brings it into a level, a different momentum of relationship there. Yes, connection. And I think, I'm not quite sure, but I think it was Aubrey Marcus who said that when you're really deep in the circling, that it's akin to a psychedelic experience. And I think my interpretation now learning from you is because you get into a space of so deeply into a field of such a deep connection with another human being or beings again. And the psychedelic experience is about feeling connected to everything. So that makes sense. How beautiful. Yeah. I've heard that described probably more than anything else. This is, this is like being on mushrooms 
doing this for a long period of time where this is being in a psychedelic trip. Maybe mm. I heard people say that it's more intense, right? Precisely because you're sober on a psychedelic trip. <laughs> Probably. It's like the, the observer is fully conscious, but I think it has something to do with that sense of because your attention and your presence is so attuned to the present moment, it's funny, the, that attunement, the world responds and opens, right, to attunement. Things develop. If I pick up maybe on an emotion that I imagine I'm sensing in you and I ask you about it, and you're like, oh, yeah, I do feel sad, let's say. I'd be like, what is that sadness? And then you start to look at that. All of a sudden, that thing that you weren't noticing, we both notice it. It brings it out of the, from the background to the foreground. You look at it, and then it starts to grow in dimensions. And you start to realize, oh, actually, yeah, it is. On one level, it's related to you, but it's also, God, it's got, it's this, I felt this sadness since I, before I could remember. Okay, so what does that feel like? And then it made. And it just, it starts to things, the world opens up in that way of being attuned and it becomes a reciprocal opening. This is where you can get into those deep flow states with people because there's a way that start, what starts to happen is I open in some sense to you in such a way that, that it actually opens you that affords you to back to me in a reciprocal way that then affords me to open even more that is manifests in responding to you that way, which affords you opening even more. And you get these kind of autopoetic reciprocal mutual accelerating senses of self-disclosure. And you start to get, this is one of the things we, this is where the practice of circling really becomes a practice is you start to kind of get a sense for how to do that. Like what affords those kinds of openings and be able to identify them and have experience with working with them and actually have an influence in a conversation where it becomes possible with you to be able to sense and respond to those kinds of spaces. And that, the thing I've noticed that with a lot of people who have done circling, this is and with myself and with a lot of the people that I coach who are like CEOs of startups and companies, that's where the skill really comes into play in terms of like conversations for insight, right? Where you can start talking about it, have a, a meeting with your team about like business strategy and something opens up and the person who knows how to circle can, in a certain sense, notice that opening and draw it out such that it ends up being this huge insight, right? That can lead to a profound different way of seeing something that can change the whole course of the company, of the culture, all those kinds of things. I have a question that I would really love to hear your perspective on, Guy, and that's how do you see the future of communication developing and mm. how do you assess will however you see this development taking place impact humanity 
in the future? There's a couple of things. I would say there's how I want it to. <laughs> and then there's how, here's how it, where it seems like it's going, what, how I want it to go. I really want there to be a deep understanding of that it's really important to have. And I think similar to the way that people take care of their bodies, that they take care of their relation, the relationality in their life, right? That there are the people, it becomes self-evident that people walk around with a, in a certain sense, a self-evident given sense in which just I need nutrition in my body. I need to have relationships that are present, attuned, right? And I have intimacy in my life and that's a priority. I think that if we have spaces that afford that, that reinforce that understanding and people really start to value that and then take it on like they take on their own fitness, right? Or their own nutrition, something like that, that we're going to end up with people walking around that are just a lot more resourceful (laughs) rather than fatigued. Because I think that a lot of the drive and stuff that people, that the overabundance of drivenness in a negative way and addictions, really, I would imagine that a lot of them is, all of that is a a symptom of of the loss of that musicality of meaning that you can only get in and through relations in a deep way. So Mm -hmm. I think one of the things, a positive direction of the internet is I think these long form conversations, like the one that you and I are having, right, is one of the places where technology has created a platform, if you will, for not just furthering of technology, but it technology affords a place for something very untechnological called mm-hmm. conversation, a deep conversation. I think that's a really positive thing, right? That we can literally like tune in to peop- other people having profound conversations, right? And become in a certain sense in our listening part of it and to have these conversations. And I think there's something really positive about that. Mm-hmm. I feel lucky to be a part of. 100%. And Guy, there's a question I like to ask every one of my honored guests. And you've, of course, shared quite a few of the practices that are pivotal and that are pillars of circling. I'd like to know, though, is there any other practice that has accompanied you in your life, or maybe it's a new practice that has elevated your experience mentally, physically, and or spiritually? Let me, I tell you what, let me just tell you all the practices I do, right? Uh-huh. Yes. The ones that I'm doing are the ones that have done all of that. So one is I meditate, like mm-hmm. probably meditate between 20 minutes to three hours a day, somewhere in that range. I do sacred reading for, and one of the things that I've been experimenting with lately is I've been taking, I love Meister Eckhart, um, the, uh, the, the German medieval Christian mystic. And I, I have all of his sermons 
that he gave. I have three books of them. And what I started to do is I go through, I'm going through a sermon. And what I do is I just, and I hand copy the first sentence of each paragraph without reading the rest of it. And then I do that. And then for the next three days, all I do is I just read the first sentence of each paragraph. And then on the third or fourth day, I'll sit down and I'll complete hmm. paragraph. And once I complete each paragraph, then I'll read the whole thing. And there's something about that makes it go just so deep into me. So that's something that I've been, that's playing with predictive processing, right? Some cognitive science kinds of things that I've woven together in that practice. That's a way I'm finding that in terms of really getting something deep in your nervous system, doing, doing that is, is so far has been really helpful for me. Love that. Um, yeah. There's also, I do every week something that is a recent development. It's a recent development, but it's also an ancient one. Um, and it's something that I, that my company hosts and it's become, it's funny. I think it's this, I think it's my second movement I'm a part of. I, I barely survived the first one, which is circling. And I, now I'm beginning another one. <laughs> <laughs> and this is called a practice. It's a practice that I've developed along with John Verbeke, yeah. who is a cognitive scientist who you're probably familiar with and Christopher Massapetro, and a whole bunch of other people who are a part of this. And it's essentially, you could say, the word philosophy comes from philia, Sophia. Philia is considered the love and intimacy that happens to fellowship. So it's philiac love. Sophia is wisdom. So within the word philosophy itself, there's wisdom and community, right? And fellowship and the intimacy of fellowship are very close to one another. And I've seen that happen in circling at a, on a lateral level. So you could say circling is this kind of lateral level of reciprocal opening. In Dialogos, what we do, it's a practice where we take that and then we turn it up on an idea, on a virtue, on a piece of wisdom, on something more philosophical. And we go through a process of basically entering into the form of making proposals. Somebody adduces out the depth of whatever was in that proposal, right? Then at a certain point, they then take that in say what still remains mysterious and the person that, that just proposed and then they come up with a proposal and then somebody deeply listens to them and draws out the depth of that and they go what's mysterious and we keep going around on say like a topic of like maybe a virtue mm -hmm. and I've been doing that every week now and teaching courses on that and that practice incorporates so many things in one it's a higher level practice mm -hmm. but in terms of 
the intimacy in terms of listening, in terms of the depth and disclosure of the logos, where you start to, at a certain point, what often happens is you go around like that, you can start to feel the structural functional organization of that idea and the unity of that idea gather because you know, logos means the gathering. The Greek sense of logos is the gathering of all things are in that they are gathered together as what they are. So they gather and show this gathering as everything's like that. So to identify with the logos is in a certain sense to become the dynamic of that gathering of that idea and a deeply embodied emotional, physical, linguistic way. Mm. And that's really powerful. Beautiful. I'd like to do a follow-up podcast, if you're open to it, on Dialogos at some point. Yeah, we could totally do that. We could totally do Yeah, I'd love that. And even with the circling, I feel like we've scratched the surface. So, So for those people who'd like to take a deeper dive and who'd like to connect with you, where can they do so, Guy? So my company, the Circling Institute, mm-hmm. so it's circlinginstitute.com. We have an open event every Thursday. So anybody can come. It's a three-hour event from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. That's been going on for years. That are, we usually have an open circling weekend, which go all day Saturday and Sunday, every four to six weeks. And then the main thing that we do is the art of circling, which is the year-long practitioner training course. And that's where you come and you learn how to actually facilitate circling. And that's, in some sense, that's like being in a, that's like kind of, in in some sense, moving into the monastery, if you will. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, We have, we have a weekend, just, we have a weekend coming up in a couple of weeks, and then we're right at the edge for people who are listening to this, the art of circling, we do that once a year and registration for this one closes and believe it's going to be the third week of September. Mm-hmm. So move on that if you're interested. And then I, I work with people one-on-one and my, you can, con- you can email me at guysinkstock at gmail. Excellent. And I'll also put all of this information into the show notes. Guy, this has been a really awesome conversation. I loved it. And yeah. I'm definitely going to be on you for the follow-up to talk about Dialogos. Yeah. I'm super grateful for how generous you generously you've shared your time and your wisdom. And uh, yeah. I know my mind is going to be a buzz for quite a while. Thank you for nourishing not only my brain, but my soul. You're an amazing. Hey, my I, Reciprocal, totally reciprocal. I just, I lost myself in your listening and your sense of wonder and your, your still composure. You have a real still composure to you that I noticed really drew me out. So thank you. Oh, thank you. To be continued. Be well, dear guy. Many blessings. And thank you so much again for being a guest on the Superhumanize podcast. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. 